you're listening to The Maniculum, pointing the finger at the Middle Ages. We bring you the choicest medieval nonsense, discuss and evaluate it, then pillage it for our own geeky purposes. Alrighty, so this week we have another shout out for one of our longtime listeners who updated their pledge just to make sure that they are in that tier, an anti-purveyance peasant to get a wonderful shout out. So thank you so much. Wolfgang Bang, thank you for being a patron and supporting the podcast, and you're one of our longest-time supporters, so thank you so much for that. And to give you guys an idea of how we use what you gift us, not only does it allow us to create more content, have better gear to produce better content for you guys, we also have a new and upcoming guest episode which we just had a lot of fun recording. And it is a guest RPG episode where we actually found, Mac went out and found the Green Knight RPG kit that came from the, what is it, A24 film? A24, yeah. Yep. Uh, the Green Knight. So that came out over the summer. So, And they also released a little module with it, an adventure module. So Mac actually went out and found that. And so we have hosted a fantastic guest episode that will be coming out very shortly. So get ready for that. But that's the sort of thing that we can do with your support. And then additionally, putting more effort into getting you guys content like homebrew marginal world stuff that is in the works. So if you want to support the podcast, please do. We have our Patreon page. You just look up the Maniculum podcast and we're there. If you want to do more like a one-time thing, uh, we also have a coffee page and that's spelled in a weird way. So let me spell it for you. I believe it's K-O-F-I. Yes, K-O-F-I. So coffee. So you can also find us there under the Maniculum podcast if you just want to make a one-time donation just to support us, you know, keep us caffeinated as we go. And yeah, so that's what we've got. Welcome to this week's episode. And thank you, Wolfgang, and thank you, everyone else. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So Perlis Vals, again. Yes. We're back at it. We're back to Perlis Vals. And we have some shorter chapters this time, so... Hopefully, we'll be able to get through a number of them and start to catch yes. up. You may have noticed, for example, that the scripts I put up, not all the chapters are there. And that's because some of the chapters were so short, they didn't warrant dialogue. Ah, okay. Yes, this makes sense as I'm looking at it now, because we skip from 13 to 15 in the notes. Yeah, exactly. And also from 11 to 13. So Yeah, 12 and 14 didn't have dialogue. 16 doesn't either. I don't know why it's an odd and even thing. Why not? Maybe our author was just, you know, feeling like having lighter days. What's that What's that quote from uh, Virgil? Never a day without a line? I've never heard that, but I believe you. Oh, it's a, it's a great quote because the Aeneid was apparently like so massive for him to do. His rule was never a day without a line. So he would write at least one line of the Aeneid every single day, which like doesn't sound like a lot. You're like, what's one line of poetry and, you know dactylic hexameter it's a lot mm -hmm. it's a lot for virgil because you're trying to figure out what the meter is you're trying to get the words right you have to make sure it like fits and then to add insult to injury latin doesn't have word order so when you go through and you try and translate it you're in a sentence and you might have an adjective and the noun that it goes with is like three lines down so 
I don't know how he did a line every single day when he's like halfway through sentences mm-hmm. and the words don't match up. But anyway, never a day without a line, which is to say, just keep going. Do a little bit every day of whatever you're working on. Okay. Previously on Perlis Vows. Lancelot defeats the challenge of the Castle of the Beards, then has a very awkward dinner and or rejection of the Lady of the House. He then has an encounter with a knight in the Waste City that is very much like the beheading game in Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. We finally meet Percival, who it turns out is a violent psychopath, and his whole deal is that as soon as he's feeling better, he wants to go fight someone. He fights Lancelot, and the two of them end up having to recover in a hermitage. We also meet Clamadaz of the Shadows, the son of the knight that Percival killed at the beginning of his backstory, who is now on a quest for revenge. His quest is stymied by the fact that the Queen of the Pavilions, with whom he is currently staying, has the hots for Percival, and Clamadaz ends up badly wounded in a fight with a completely different knight, Melio of Lograce, whom we last saw as a child riding a lion, and Percival has to promise to come back and fight him when he's feeling better. So we are on branch 10. Incidentally, I'm not sure if I've mentioned this before, but I'm using Evans's chapter structure rather than Bryant's because they have different approaches to it. Ah. Bryant only starts a new branch when the text actually says another branch begins. But Evans starts a new branch every time there's a significant change in narrator perspective. That would make things difficult. Why? Okay, my immediate question is why did he choose to do this? Well, I don't know why why Evans would choose to do it the way he did, but the major difference is that if you only say now is a new branch when a new branch starts, then your branches will range from seven pages long to 50 pages long. That's a lot. Yeah. And I I understand dividing it up into like easier bite-sized chunks, but also as a historian, that's incredibly frustrating to go back and look at and try and figure out what the original mm-hmm. is and where where things get split yeah, up. Yeah, I think Bryant made the right choice in terms of recreation, but Evans made the right choice for us because it makes it easier Fair. to break it up. Absolutely. And I can also kind of see why he did it because in Bryant's division, we've got like one branch for King Arthur at, the, at right at the beginning. And then five branches that are Sir Gawain that is all divided, that is divided up into five. Right. Then one branch for Clamadaz, then one branch for Lancelot, then one branch for Percival. And like, it's basically after Clamadaz, the branches are all really long. It's like the poets forgot to start uh, putting in breaks. New branch. Yeah, that makes sense. So that's why Bryant's is only 11 branches, whereas Evans is 36. That makes more sense. Much more so far, they've pretty much matched up. Branch 8 in Bryant is Branch 10 in Evans. But I'm saying that because they're about to stop matching up. I see. Alright. Anyway, Branch 10. <clears throat> so we're following Lancelot again now. He's just arrived at a castle in the woods, at the entrance of which are, quote, an aged knight and two maidens sitting on a bridge. They have him in for dinner, and then they explain they have a problem. At some point in the past, they let Sir Gawain stay here. Oh, no. <laughs> and that's the problem. This is already a problem, yeah. <laughs> now, for reasons unclear guy. to them, this has angered another knight who is now trying to take the castle. That seems like an actually very common occurrence for the day and time. Yeah, that there's just like that web we talked about last time where all, there's all these rivalries between knights and then suddenly you accidentally take sides in one. And then, and then you're screwed. What are you going to yeah. do? 
Okay. All right. Makes sense. So they're pissed off at Gawain. Well, they're mostly concerned about this other knight who's angry at them. They and the other knight have a truce, but that truce ends tomorrow, and then this knight will show up and demand a fight, which none of them are able to win, see above old man to maidens. Yes, that makes sense. They need a champion, basically, and Lancelot has arrived at the perfect time. Oh, how convenient. Lancelot is kind of taken aback because he didn't sign up for this. Understandable. Quote, what? I came to this castle only to find lodging, but you would engage me so soon in battle? That's kind of your job, Lancelot. Right, that's what he does. Yeah, like, it's an exchange for lodging, what do you expect? Yeah. Anyway, he does it, because he's gotta, mm -hmm. and pretty much immediately violently unhorses the guy, because that's what Lancelot does. I don't see why he's complaining then. Yes, well, I mean, it's easy for him. I think he was just offended that, like, you weren't giving me lodging out of the goodness of your heart, you wanted something from me, and they're like, yeah. We need you to fight a guy, but look. He's a prick, but all right. That's what you do all the time. Yeah, come on. All right, so Lancelot is now approaching this guy who's on the ground with sword drawn, ready to moiterize this stranger, and the other knight begs for mercy. And it turns out it's that <laughs> Marin the Jealous again, pursuing <gasps> his weird anti-Gowan vendetta. Understandable, kill him. <laughs> Lancelot makes him surrender his shield to the maidens and make a vow of peace and then moves on with his life. Unfortunately, he does not kill Marin the Jealous, even though we would all agree that Marin the Jealous should die. He's like one of the few in this story that I yes. would actually advocate, you know, a, a very severe quick end. Yes, he absolutely deserves death. But Also, like, again, it wasn't even Gawain's fault. No, no, that's why I said it was a weird anti-Gowan vendetta. It's not yeah. like you, Gowan did nothing wrong in any part of that. <laughs> it was all Marin. Gowan has never done anything wrong ever in his life. This well, is blatantly false, however. I was going to say, like, that is in no way true. But in this particular case, he's He innocent. has done nothing. But that's pretty much the end of Lancelot's encounter with Man the Jealous. Surrenders, and he's like, now apologize. And he's like, I apologize. And that's it. Maybe Marin can learn something from this. Probably not. I highly doubt it. After journeying for some unspecified time, Lancelot comes to a field outside a grand city, where a parade of people come out of the gates as he rides along. Quote, with a mighty noise of bagpipes and flutes and viols and other instruments. So we're in Scotland. Apparently. I always <laughs> appreciate a good bagpipe. Bagpipes are an underutilized and underappreciated instrument. I agree. They're great. Also, like, do bagpipes, like, have another domain besides Scotland? Like, I just assumed it was Scotland because it's sort of a cultural symbol. But, yeah. like, do they do they come from anywhere else? I don't know. Let's let's find out. Oh, okay. Europe, Northern Africa, Western Asia, the Persian Gulf, and parts of South Asia. Yeah, I guess they've been around. So I was very wrong about about having them be Scottish in nature. Fascinating. It definitely looks like there's a lot of like traditional bagpiping around the world. So that's good. Indeed. That's cool. There should be more bagpipe world solidarity. Yes. Fact. Huh. Oh, and apparently the German bagpipe, or at least one of the German bagpipes, is called the Doodle Sack. The Doodle Sack? I love German so much. <laughs> it really is a Doodle Sack, isn't it? Yes, that is exactly what it is. It is a Doodle Sack. I love it. Anyway. Anyway. Ooh. In Tunisia, there's a double chanter that terminates in two cow's horns. So that's Whoa. fun. All right. Enough about bagpipes. Enough about bagpipes. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. 
Anyway, so they're in possibly Scotland or elsewhere. Yeah, or yes, they're in Scotland or not in Scotland, as everyone <laughs> is at all times. <laughs> the two genders. <laughs> Uh, when Lancelot reaches them, since he's going in the opposite direction on the same road, he can't avoid them, he has the following conversation. Whom is this parade for? Why, it's for you, sire! Excellent! Why? Direct quote. We will tell you. The city has begun to burn in one quarter ever since the death of our king, and the fire will never be quenched until we've had a king to be lord of our city, and it's fief for a year's term. At the end of that year, he must cast himself into the fire, and thus it will be extinguished. Until then, it cannot be quenched, nor will it die. And so we have come to meet you to bestow our kingdom upon you, for we have heard that you are a great knight. I would prefer not to do this. But you've got to. Anyway, this keeps up for a while as they parade him into the city. By the way, I need to put in there that like, that was the people collective. Yes. Collectively, just the entire city. Yes, apparently. Also, why would they lead with this? I guess they've got to get it out ahead of time. Like, it's the contract. I guess. Why not just be like, hey, you want to be our uh, king? Yeah. Perks and benefits. Perks and benefits. Yes. One downside. There's one downside. We'll talk about it later. Next year. Yeah. Next year. Next year. Sacral kingship. <laughs> but yeah, they parade him into the city and they keep arguing over this. Lancelot keeps saying he's not going to be their king and they keep saying that's a selfish decision. And this carries on until Warwick Davis arrives with a brand new disguise. Ooh. What's he wearing, Zoe? I don't think he's had a regular peasant garb yet, so we'll have him be in one of those, like, just, like, I don't know, generic fantasy medieval Ren fair outfits, but with a really, really weird hat. I can see it. I can see it in my head. Right? Perfect. Yeah. That is the goal. And he's got, like, one of those little tankard holders at his hip. Yeah. You those are so that. fun. I love those. <laughs> totally not realistic, I don't think, but... But they're convenient. But they're convenient and they're fun. Anyway, Warwick Davis arrives dressed like a Rinfair peasant with a silly hat and a beautiful maiden by his side. Good for him. Once he's been caught up with the goings-on, he offers to be their king. So the people of the city happily crown Warwick and Lancelot goes on his way. The end of that. I really hope that we're going to come back to this because that <laughs> seems like a plot that could have really interesting conclusions. Because, like, what it seems like right now is that Lancelot is, like, a minor character in Warwick Davis's story. Yeah, absolutely. This is, like, you know what this is? This is, like, um, Jon Snow showing up in Game of Thrones, and all these people are like, you should be our king! And then Tyrion Lannister shows up, and he's like, I'll do it. And then he takes over, and I, I want that to be the subplot of, I don't know, seasons, what was it, seven and eight? Th those <laughs> burned, right? I don't know. I never watched the show. I was worried it would spoil the books. And now I've heard that the ending bombed so badly that George R. R. Martin is changing the books. So I'm like, now it's not even, there's no, not even a point. Oh, I'm sure he's, he's going to write a single sentence in 2022 and I'll be very proud of him. Yes. <laughs> you know, Dance with Dragons came out when I was an undergrad. That's wild. <sighs> I mean, he's making money. He is under no obligation to write any further. I think he's under a moral obligation to finish the story. I would hope so. However. Yeah. But yeah, story. Okay, cool. Right on. That night, Lancelot arrives at a conspicuously newly built hermitage and meets a very young hermit. 
The Hermit asks after Percival. Lancelot tells him he's doing well. And the two trade background information for a bit. Okay, understood. All of which we know already. Plot exposition. This is Pelis's son, Joseus, the uh, matricidal young man Gowan <laughs> met earlier. Oh, I see. Who has clearly followed through on his vow to become a hermit. Good for him. A conversation that ensues about Joseus's choice in home decor. Say, I can't help but notice all the weapons and armor hanging on your walls. You're a lot more heavily armed than most hermits I've met. Uh, oh, it's it's a purely for self-defense. The forest is full of bandits and villains. <laughs> they would attack a hermit? Well, yes. And of course, as a hermit, I avoid killing and even wounding another human being. So how does that whole self-defense thing work? Well, it's simple, you see. I hold them down, and then my servant boy kills them for me. I feel like that's a good way around it. <laughs> I mean, it works to a point, I guess? Like, sure. Letter of the law. I mean, at that point, you could also make the argument that, like, oh, I didn't kill him. My sword just killed him. Hey, swords don't kill people. <laughs> servant boys kill people. <laughs> I guess we're talking about ablative of agency here, and objects can't be can't be agents, they can only be objects, so it doesn't quite work. There's definitely a question as to like to what degree Joseus is complicit in their deaths, because it's a little, like little culpable there. Yeah. But anyway, this apparently happens all the time because that very night, four quote robber knights. I don't know why they're both robbers and knights. If they're knights, you'd assume they have an estate somewhere and they wouldn't just be living in the forest as highwaymen. We do have the term robber baron, so... That's true. That is, is... different, but yes. <laughs> it's the new homebrew class. Robber knight or robber baron? Robber, robber knight. We've got leechkins, we've got blood witches, now we've got oh, I forgot about knights. the blood witches. We need right? stats for blood witches. Yeah, we do. That was such a good idea. We got it folded. <laughs> anyway, the yes. robber knights are here to steal Lancelot's stuff. Steal Lancelot's stuff? Yeah, he's got that uh, shiny horse and gear parked right outside. They're going to take yeah, it. Yeah, fair enough. Joseus is up late praying, so he wakes his servant boy, and they go deal with it. The noise wakes Lancelot, who goes out to find Joseus wrapping things up. The four knights are now tied to a tree, but still alive. Oh dear. They have a quick okay. chat. S sorry, I didn't mean to wake you. Why didn't you ask me to help with this? Oh, well, you know, this sort of thing happens all the time. As for the Tide of Nights, we get a note on their fate. Oh dear. As soon as it was day, Lancelot and the boy led them out into the forest, their hands tied behind their backs, and hanged them in a wild place far from the hermitage. I mean... Talk about vigilante justice. Uh, Lancelot, kill count, ten. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> oh no, okay. <laughs> Makes sense. Also, I just want you to know that whoever owned this book before me, I, I always try to buy books with writing in them when I can. The best. Has underlined, hanged them in a wild place far from the hermitage and just written an exclamation point in the margin. <laughs> Understandable. Yeah, I feel like you basically did the audio version of that. So after <laughs> hanging some people... As, as one does. As apparently. one does. 
Lancelot continues on for some time, quote, finding many castles and hermitages, which I feel like sums up most of the travel in this book. Yeah, the hermitage, the hostel, and the castle is like, you know, the nicer, nicer places he gets to stay. But he eventually arrives at some striking imagery. And I quote, He rode on until he passed out of the forest and came upon a most beautiful meadowland where flowers bloomed everywhere. A great river, clear and wide, flowed there, with forests on both sides. But the meadows between the river and the forests were long and wide. Looking ahead, Lancelot caught sight of a man sailing a big boat, and in the boat were three old and white-haired knights, and a maiden who seemed to be resting in her lap, the head of a knight, who lay on a mattress covered with brocaded silk and blanketed with ermine. Wait, okay, I need some clarification here. Like, she's got a guy's head in her lap and he's attached to the rest of him? Yes. Or there's just a head? It's definitely still attached, but that is okay. an important clarification in this in this book, is that the head is attached. I was like, you know, it, like if she's sitting on her mattress and she's just like, ah, yes, my, my head, alas, poor Yorick. You know, that has very different implications than her, like, you know, playing with a guy's hair. Yeah, no, I I would 100% not be surprised if in this book there was just a maiden who was, like, carrying a head in her lap and petting it like a Pekingese or something. Yeah, you know, you know, I, you do you. But no, this is like someone's laying his head in her lap. Okay. Another maiden was sitting at his feet. There was a knight in the boat fishing. The shank of his hook seemed to be of gold and he was catching a great number of big fish, which he placed in a little craft behind the boat. So he's got like a little fishing bucket dragging behind the, the boat. Which seems like a weird way to do things, but whatever, maybe it's how they well, did things at the time. It keeps it clean, you know, if she's got her whole mattress set up, you know, yeah. I wouldn't want fish guts in it. That's true, but I also wouldn't want like a, a mattress with brocaded silk and ermine on a fishing expedition. Like, That's fair. Don't, don't take that in the boat. <laughs> So he asks these folks if there's a castle or something ahead where he might find lodging. And they're like, sure, just ahead is the castle of the Fisher King. Handy. Yeah. So Lancelot heads toward the castle of the Fisher King, but first stops at a convenient hermitage, because he thinks he'd better make confession before going somewhere as holy as the court of the Fisher King. This doesn't work out great, though, because at the end of the confession, they have this conversation. Oh, <laughs> But there is one sin for which I cannot repent. And what sin is that? I am in love with a queen. Direct quote. Oh, mortal sinner, what are you saying? Nothing of worth can come from such lust, but that it be most dearly bought. You are a traitor to your earthly lord and a crucifier of our saviour. Of the seven deadly sins, you are burdened with one of the greatest. The joy it gives is pure deception, and you will pay most dearly for it if you do not soon repent. But it's true love. Cool reason, still sin. Surely God will smile on true lovers. Yes, well, that is uh, not how it works. In fact, you're probably too sinful to even see the grail, Sonny. <laughs> Good ad lib. Good ad lib. Thank you. Get my little, get my improv in. <laughs> Also, I do appreciate that he says, of the seven deadly sins, you are burdened with one of the greatest. Like, oh, one of the greatest of seven. Of like, seven. So what, I can't, like the I can't third? Do math. Like somewhere in the middle? <laughs> yeah, yeah, like 
What percentage is that exactly? I can't do math. Yeah, because he can't, he can't say the greatest, because I'm pretty sure that's supposed to be pride. Right. So what is it? Is it pride and then greed and then lust? Or is it pride and just straight to lust? I don't know. All he specifies is one of the greatest, which I would think is already clear. Like, if it's already in, if it's in the seven, then... You've pretty much covered it already, bro. Yeah, like, you're. Ar- it's already one of the greatest sins. It's in the seven deadly sins. Right. I really like the emphasis on being a crucifier of our savior. Yeah, I thought that was harsh. That's that's real rough. That's rough. It is. <laughs> like, not only are you a traitor, but you're one of the people who would have crucified Christ. I can almost see, like, you know, your, your evangelical priest saying stuff like that. Like, when you lust in your heart, it's like you are personally sticking Jesus with nails. I have heard that analogy before, so yes. Oh. You would be correct. Every so often I learn that there is no possible way I can exaggerate to a point where an actual evangelical preacher wouldn't say that. Yeah, pretty much. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Those guys are extreme. It's it's a lot. You get Especially rural Alaska. Ooh. Ooh. That's true. I guess Alaska's got a lot of rural. Oh, so much rural. Yeah, I don't have anything to add to that. I'm just concerned for rural Alaskans now. Like, what kind you know? of crazy stuff are their priests saying to them? What kind of trauma are they getting? Anyway. Back to Perlis Vows. <laughs> where was I? Oh, yes. Lancelot continues to the court of the Fisher King, where he receives a kind welcome. The king asks about his nephew Percival. Lancelot says he's doing well. They then have the following conversation, which I have quoted directly. And oh this is our next thing. Lancelot... Behold the chapel of the Holy Grail. It appeared to two knights who came here. I do not know the name of the first, but I never saw one so calm or tranquil, nor one who looked more fine a knight. But because of him, I have fallen into languor, and the other knight was Sir Gawain. <laughs> That's okay. not what, That was the face I made when I read that line, too. It was like... <laughs> I'm glad you give this whole description of the first time and you're like, and the other one was Sir Gawain. Was Gawain. Yes, the first time I'm presuming was Percival. Yes. And in fact, as Lancelot then says, Sire, the first was your nephew, Percival. Oh, take care that you speak true. I do, sire. I ought to know him. Oh, God. Why did I not realize? Because of him... I am thus languishing, but if I had known that it was he, I would now have been sound in limbs and body. I don't understand how that works. Does this get explained? I don't think it does. Okay, well, I'll come back to that when I finish this quote. I pray you, when you see him, tell him to come and see me before I die, and to go and aid and succor his mother. For her men are being slain, and her land is being taken from her, and none but he can win it back. His sister has gone in search of him through every realm. Is that Groucho? No, that's D- uh, Dan Drain, and we we see her pop up every once in a while. Oh, okay, okay. She's usually just called Percival's sister, but the introduction tells us her name is Dan Drain. Dan Drain. That's a good name. Yeah. And of course, Lancelot responds, Sire, I will gladly tell him so, if ever I find him anywhere. 
but it will be a great stroke of luck if I do, for he goes under many disguises and conceals his name in many parts. I mean, that's fair. A lot of them have so far. Yes. Which, you know, on account of our girl boss friend, makes sense. Yes. Yes. I... Don't know if Lancelot and Percival have been warned about her or not. I don't think they have, but it still makes sense not to, like, say your name everywhere. Yeah. But yeah, it does not explain why knowing who Percival was would have helped the Fisher King. Yeah, that's that's odd. Also, I would not call Percival calm or tranquil. No, I absolutely would not. Like, in no way does he behave calmly or tranquilly. Our introduction to him was him deciding... I feel good today. I want to fight someone. Like, that's literally his entire character. He has one personality trait, and it's violence. Right. As soon as he learned what knights were, he A, killed one, and then B, rode off to become one. And then never came back home. Yeah. Mm, Maybe this is when he was under the influence of the holy church drugs. It could be. But still, that's pretty... mm, He doesn't have a very good grasp of who his nephew is. No. The only explanation for that, like, I can think of is that possibly the Fisher King is thinking, if I had been able to introduce myself as his uncle, he would have felt more comfortable asking questions. True. That's fair. Also, it still doesn't make any sense because the whole reason Gawain couldn't is because he was, like, mesmerized under the influence of the church smokes. Right. So it would have been hard anyway. It's also possible that he's thinking, oh, if I had known it was him, I would have been able to tell Dandrain when she came around looking, because she was around when uh, Gowan stopped by, I believe, trying to find that's, him. That's very true. And also, also maybe it's like, you know, the Wizard of Oz, where you have to wear the glasses. Maybe mm. you don't have to partake of the smokes if you're family. Maybe. But maybe. anyway. Yeah, lots of possibilities. Not sure. Doesn't explain. <laughs> Why would it? That ruins the mystique. Yes. Anyway, they have a nice dinner, during which the Grail does not appear, presumably because Lancelot is too sinful. That's convenient for him, though. Yeah. At least in this case. He doesn't have to deal with any of the stuff. He's just like, oh, no Grail for you. Bye. Bye. And he has mass, and then leaves in the morning. Handy. Later, traveling through the forest, Lancelot comes across a maiden, weeping and bewailing and pleading and following a knight who's just ignoring her. That's rough, buddy. (laughs) When she sees Lancelot, the maiden calls out for him to help her. Lancelot asks her what's going on, and she explains that the knight had pretended to love her, but her father had been unwilling to give them permission to marry. So they ran off to elope, but now instead of getting secret married, he's just ignoring her, and she thinks he actually is in love with someone else, and the whole thing was just a scheme to bring shame to her and her family, and she wants Lancelot to help her convince the knight to marry her after all. I wouldn't want to marry this a- who is pretending to love me. I know. I don't get it either. I mean, unless he has a lot of money and she's just looking for security because now that she's eloped, she can't go back to her family and he's disowned her. Like, that makes sense. That could be it. I feel like that's pretty pretty likely in this, in this case. Yes. But this goes on for a while and like a big chunk of text can be boiled down to the following dialogue. <laughs> Here we go. Sir Knight, is all of this true? Uh, yep. But look how hot she is. Yeah, my real girlfriend's hotter. 
I'm just taking this one home to leave in the care of my dwarf until I find someone who wants her. Scoundrel! If you were armed, I would fight you right now. No, no, don't don't damage him. Just look how hot he is. Just just make him marry me. Sir Knight, will you marry her? Uh, no. All right, it's murder time then. Wait, wait. If it's if it's marry her or die, I, I guess I'll marry her. Damsel, are you happy with that? Yes, but you have to make sure he does it for real. Lancelot escorts them to a chapel where they are married by a hermit. Ah, wedded bliss. Another victory for heteronormative institutions. Lancelot, away! Oh, no. After leaving behind what's sure to be a very healthy relationship. For sure, yeah, of course. <laughs> Lancelot meets a maiden and a dwarf in the forest. Warwick is still wearing his Plague Doctor mask because this is the same one. Understood. The maiden asks if he's seen another maiden lately, weeping and following a knight, and Lancelot catches her up on the day's events. At which point she delivers a speech that I think is personally spot on. Here we go. So you're telling me that you forced my boyfriend into marrying someone else after you and Gawain had already killed my uncle and three of my cousins, whom Warwick and I had to bury. And you killed the knight to the Waste Manor off stage several chapters ago? You just leave a trail of death and heartbreak wherever you go, don't you? I really hope that one of your stupid duels eventually kills you, you b- Obviously, that is not verbatim, but that really is the the gist of it. <laughs> she's yeah, she's spot on. Yeah, yeah, I think she's honestly she's got the right of it. That she is does. a good summation of what we've got going on. Absolutely, it is. My notebook is falling apart, so I'm going to apply a binder clip strategically, real quick. Yes, strategic binder clip engage. The cover's already fallen off, but now the glue that holds the pages together is also coming undone. Oh no because I carry this around so I can make notes that's like the laundromat in places. That's very clever. Thank you. I always carry my notebook. It's so important. Yes. You should always carry a notebook with you. You should. I have a lot of those little field notes that I I use for things. Those are the best. I love field notes. I I also love field notes. If you want to sponsor us, field notes. Yes. Yeah. Dude, if we, could, if we could in any way get a sponsorship from Field Notes, I would be all over that. I'm already subscribed to them. I've got like the special right? box that you keep Yeah! Oh, I've got the same one! Oh, man. What if they did like a medieval notebook-oriented one? Yeah. Oh, that would be cool. With little marginalia. Oh, my gosh. And like the front and the back cover. I also have their D&D character notebook they made a while back. <gasps> Those are so good. I got them as presents for all of my players. Yes. They're so fun. And the, the Dungeon Masters one is really cool too. Highly recommend. If you're looking for like a little character booklet or if you're looking for a little notebook for your Dungeon Master stuff. And it's something that is not massive. It's not one of those massive spiral bound ones. So it's perfect for a campaign, whether it's a bunch of different one shots or whether it's like a running campaign. It's just, it's the perfect size and it just fits in your bag. Anyway, it's fantastic. Yeah. I'm, I'm starting a new campaign soon as a player. And like a good chunk of the reason I'm excited is because I finally get to use one of them. Oh, yay! Yes, field notes are great. Anyway, buy field notes. I mean, field notes sponsor us. (laughs) Well, buy field notes anyway, but you know. (laughs) Uh, So 
Mac here. I feel I should clarify that the notebook I have that is falling apart is not by Field Notes. It is in fact one of a number of cheap notebooks that I bought for students before deciding to do all that stuff digitally. I think I've mentioned this before. They're all poorly made. I'm just trying to use up my stash of them. Plague Dr. Warwick and the Maiden leave, and Lancelot heads back to Pellis. They talk about his trip to the court of the Fisher King, Pellis chastises him for loving the queen more than he loves God, and Lancelot, probably inspired by all this talk of the queen, decides to head back to Arthur's court. Understandable. And that's the end of chapter 10. There we go. The end. Lancelot, you utter horndog. Yes. Now I can... Oh, that's also apparently near where the thing broke, so I can... I don't have to fiddle around with binder clips. I can just read this last page. <laughs> hold, your, hold your two halves. <laughs> yeah. All right, so, Branch 11. Yes. We're back to Percival, who's heading for his appointment with Clamadaws. Oh, yes, that's right, because they're having it out. Yes. However, on his way, he meets Groucha, who brings news. Here we go. Groucha's news is... da da da, -da Clamadaws has died of his wounds. Are you serious? Yes. <laughs> oh... Yeah, I mean, that's what you get as as being a that guy player. But, you know, DM killed you. I just love they spend so much time on him and then he just dies off stage. Come on, man. <laughs> Rip Klamadaz, you will not be missed, but you will be mourned. In the new campaign I'm starting, I am naming my character Klamadaz. Are you serious? Yes. Oh, that's the best. I, he's, he is inspired by Klamadaz, because part of the backstory for the campaign is that there was, like, a grand campaign, and the heroes failed, and so now we're living in the oh. aftermath. And my uh, character is, his backstory is that he, he's a goblin, and in, in one of their early adventures, the great heroes who recently failed killed members of his tribe. Oh! And so now he's decided that the best revenge is to go out and become known as a better hero than them. You know, that really is the best revenge. The best I revenge like is living well. Absolutely. So he's heroing out of spite, which I feel is on brand for me. 100%. Spite is a very, very powerful motivator. Yeah. But enough about my character who I actually haven't started playing yet. <laughs> Clamadaz, dead. Yes. In case you were concerned, Melio of Logris has recovered from his wounds. Yes. Well, we were worried about him and his lion. Yes. Well, the lion's dead. Well, Yes. Also, the queen has gotten sick of the whole pavilions gimmick, maybe because it's getting cold out or something, and has packed it all in and gone back to her real castle. Makes sense. Camping is only fun to a point. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I don't know. I always like camping, but if it's getting cold out, then I'm kind of done with it. I once did a spring break trip where we camped and there was still three feet of snow, so that was less than a fun time. I assume this was in Alaska. It was. We also had to keep firearms for bear protection, and I slept on a Glock the whole night. I did not realize it was there until I lifted up my sweater that I was using as a pillow, and I was like, <laughs> that's a firearm. I'm just imagining that every once in a while you try and tell the story, and someone says, I'm sorry, did you say you slept on a rock? No. No. <laughs> you misunderstood me. <laughs> Something slightly more uncomfortable and a little bit more terrifying. Yes. To be fair, it was in a holster. Safety was on. It was fine. I just didn't realize it had, it had gotten squished in there. And I was like, oh, <laughs> interesting. I'm never going camping in Alaska. <laughs> <laughs> I 
Mostly because of the cold, not even because of the bears. That's valid. But also, I don't own a gun. To be fair, you don't need a gun to go camping. There are plenty of safe safe places to go camping. We were just out in the bush. Oh, okay. Oh, also, Grouch just says, in case no one has managed to pass this on to you yet, your mother is in need of your help. Oh my gosh. And your sister is out searching for you. Everyone's been trying to find you for ages. Please go home. Yeah. Dumbass. But I don't think anyone actually has managed to tell him that yet. That's true. It's mostly just been him wandering around killing people and other people trying to find him. Yeah, I don't know if Lancelot told him, because he was in the same place as Lancelot earlier, but I don't know. He, remember, he went out and fought Lancelot for fun, and then the two of them had to lie in a hermitage. And that's, r- that's right. It's just bros being bros. <laughs> oh, no. There's only one bed in which we can recover from our wounds. <laughs> See, I like that you're like, you're bros being bros instantly caused my like terminally internet brain to go like oh this is a fanfic thing and then you immediately made it a fanfic thing (laughs) absolutely i did i've been on the internet long enough (laughs) i know how this works it is now canon in our perilous vows that percival and lancelot at the hermitage was very homoerotic (laughs) (laughs) they gave each other the the christian kiss yes yes the kiss of peace yes kiss of peace also mate What's what's that fan fiction called where someone's like injured and the other person's like caring for them? That's like whole genre. Comfort fic? I think that's it. I don't read fanfic, but I read discourse about fanfic, which I think Same. is possibly worse. It depends on the fanfic, I think. But I don't know. <laughs> it, um, most of my fanfic knowledge comes from when um Professor Powell explain to us the origins of fanfic and how slashfic became a thing through mm-hmm. Kirk and Spock yep. fanfiction. Accurate. Which was an incredible thing to learn about. And I think fanfiction is a very good example of why we need more diverse media mm-hmm. so that we can have well-written, thought-out queer characters and we don't need to take already existing characters and IP and write incredibly strange variations on a theme. Yeah, I wonder if that would actually stop, or if if now that it's been going on for, like, decades, that it would just keep going, even if we had enough representation. I don't know, because, like, on the one hand, I'm like, cool, fanfic, let's go. I started writing, when I started writing original characters in the Star Wars universe, because I thought Jedi were cool. And so that's, that's, like, how I learned how to write. And so I'm here for fanfic. But when you start having problems with, like, straight women writing two straight characters, like, two straight male characters as a queer couple, and mm-hmm. then getting mad when anybody else has a different opinion about those two characters just being friends, then you've got a problem. And it's yes. way too rampant in the fanfiction, like, community. Yeah, yeah. Fetishizing gay relationships as a straight person is deeply It's very, yeah, absolutely, it's problematic. And also it it diminishes the ability for young men to have close relationships with each other, Mm -hmm. because then those women immediately fetishize them in real life. Oh, you know, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, like, because men already have such a hard time in our society touching each other or hugging or showing affection, showing emotion in front of each other. And that, that only makes it worse when the only thing they can be other than a manly man is gay. Yeah. 
And if that's yeah. the discourse, then it's really, really, really problematic. Yeah, I was just talking about this with someone uh, earlier today, that like anyone assigned male at birth is basically socialized into not being emotionally vulnerable to anyone mm-hmm. except their sexual partners. Absolutely. And it's deeply frustrating. And it also hurts their sexual partners, particularly women in straight relationships, because then you get the whole thing of that woman having to mom them, quote unquote, mm-hmm. and like be yeah. their caretaker. And that's not their job. And so it just hurts everybody. But anyway, I digress. Yes. Yes. So in insofar as yes, there are there are very odd hoboerotic bits and pieces in medieval literature. Some of these instances we are exaggerating and making fun of or poking fun at the idea because of course queerness was pushed down and hidden during this time. However, that is not to say that two male characters cannot have a firm, healthy affectionate relationship with each other without it being homoerotic yes homosocial bonds yes i feel like that's an important thing to to get out there fanfic in general is like i have a weird relationship with the concept because it's academically fascinating oh yes almost no interest in like actually reading it like i just want to hear the majority of it is is trash i I want to hear about the community but i don't want to like join it i just want to read about like oh yeah what's going on well because it's fascinating it's absolutely it's like a meme community almost yeah it's just one of those one of those worlds anyway future mac here just to be clear if you write or read fanfic we are in no way judging you we support you like zoe said it's a great way to explore one's creative talents and i am aware that there is a lot of great work being produced in that community so when we say that we personally don't read fanfic That's not a judgment on those who read or write it themselves, just in case anyone was feeling attacked. Right. Anyway, on the subject (laughs) of patriarchy being bad for everyone, let's go back to Perlisvaus. Oh, huzzah! After Perlisvaus is told that his family is looking for him, he just turns around and leaves. Literally, as soon as Groucha finishes her exposition, the text says, quote, Without another word, Percival left the maiden. I mean, kind of understandable, though. If my mom were in trouble, I'd immediately get on a plane. But I mean, you could at least say, thanks for telling me. That's true. That's fair. Uh, He passes out of Logris and into Wales. And here's where I made that note about Logris being the Welsh word for England, because that's when I I looked it up. Ah. Anyway, in Wales, Percival comes to a castle on a high rock overlooking the sea. He sees a knight ride out of the castle, so he asks where he is. And the knight explains that this is the castle of the galleys. Ruled over by the Queen of the Maidens. Sorry, galleys as in, like, kitchen galley? Like a ship? I think ship. Although, what I wrote after this is presumably the Maidens are engaged in proofreading, so I also had a moment of, like, what kind of galley? Okay. I think it's the ship. But I I like better it being the proofreading kind of galley. Makes sense. Uh, Percival enters the castle and sees that on the staircase leading to the main hall, knights and maidens are seated, unmoving and unspeaking. They line the entire staircase. Percival tries to speak to them as he ascends the stairs, but they ignore him. He enters the hall and the queen greets him. And then a maiden within the chamber speaks to the queen. And I have a quote. This is utterly spooky. Oh, dang it. This was supposed to be a dialogue and I forgot to make it a dialogue. Oh, no. Now now I've got to read it as, as just me. This is the knight who first came before the grail. 
I saw him at the court of the Queen of the Pavilions, where he was charged with treachery. Quickly, bid them sound the ivory horn. Thereupon, the horn was sounded above the castle, and the knights and maidens who were sitting on the steps leapt up rejoicing, saying that now they knew for certain that their penance was done. Oh, I see. This is why they weren't talking. Yes, it was penance. Ah, it's always penance. They crowded into the hall, and the queen appeared from her chamber holding Percival by the hand and came up to meet them. Behold, she said, the knight who has caused you such pain and hardship, but who has now set you free. That no one's gonna, no one's gonna hold him to this? Like, the whole, oh yeah, I recognize this guy, he was accused as a, as a treacherous man, like... We're leaving that one there? Nope, we're leaving it. <laughs> okay! So it turns out, the weird penance thing is another bit of fallout from Percival's visit to the court of the Fisher King. Ever since, these knights and maidens have been seated, unmoving and unspeaking, on the steps. This raises some questions about how they've been living this whole time and how filthy the steps are, but this is hand-waved. Oh, I didn't think about that. Oh, I didn't. I don't like that. Yeah, mm. that, that's all. Every time that, that someone's like, and he stayed there for like unmoving. I'm like, mm-hmm. did he? Did he? Are know. you sure about that? Like it's 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 something that really only comes up in very non-realistic genres, like like Perilous Vows. Yeah, like romances or or folk tales. But there, it's always a weird moment of like, how did he poop? <laughs> You gotta think about these things. Yes. It's like how in, in fantasy novels, like, no woman ever gets their period. That's an interesting point. I've, I kind <laughs> of assume it's because, like, in fantasy novels written by men, they are uncomfortable talking about it because they don't feel comfortable writing about an experience that they have no idea about. I think you vastly... giving them the benefit of the doubt Yeah, they might be uncomfortable about it because they think it's gross, but... To be sure, like, you don't typically have moments when fantasy characters actually go to the bathroom. But then when you get somebody yeah. who writes something like Grimdark or something, they'll have characters do those daily deeds, but they still won't have a woman menstruating. Yeah, yeah, that definitely came up in Game of Thrones. Absolutely, it did. That's why I'm bringing it up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, they, they talk about periods, because they call it, like, a you know, the woman's blood or first blood mm-hmm. or whatever, but they don't actually show any female character, insofar as I know, dealing with that. Like, Arya, when she's on the road, do we ever get to see her deal with that? I don't remember it being mentioned. I don't think so. But that's that's one of the things that is routine that a woman would have to do. So it like, okay, I'm sorry, this is a call out post. If you're okay. writing a grim, dark fantasy novel, and you include the daily, like, you know, you know, taking a shit, taking a piss, and you don't include a woman menstruating, especially if she's a POV character, then please come back to me and tell me why your novel is grim, dark. And it's not just like fantasy porn for men. I want to know. I appreciate this call. <laughs> Thank you. Like, and to be fair, you do not need to have those things in your fantasy novel for it to be a grim and, you know, compelling fantasy novel. But I'm just saying that there's kind of a weird double standard there for, like, you know, issues for men and issues for women when you're writing a quote unquote grim, dark fantasy novel. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'll get off my pedestal now. Although I've got to say that were I to be writing a fantasy novel, I would probably avoid writing a first-person perspective of someone menstruating because I don't know what it's like. Yeah, that's fair. Like, and to be fair, you could ask. Like, that's why, like, in video games, we have consultants. But also, it's a bit awkward to get a consultant on that in particular. Now that you've put that in my head, 
if I ever do write like a published novel of any kind, I'm going to put something like that in just so I can credit someone as my menstruation consultant. <laughs> yes, diversity and visibility, baby. <laughs> Let's go. That's a really good idea. And now I want to use that title for someone. Right? Right? And I will not apologize for bringing this up on the podcast because it's something that I think needs to be normalized. And it's one of my little champion issues that I that I like to, to talk about. So yeah. yeah, it's a normal thing. Get used to it. Get comfortable with it. I had not thought about it before, but now that you have brought it up, I am fully in agreement with you. Right on. <laughs> and to be fair, this is not me saying that you need to include this in your novel. Please do not feel compelled to include it in your novel. But... It's just a point for all the grim, dark fantasy novelists out there. Just yeah, a point. If you're including some bodily functions, consider why you're avoiding others. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for putting that so eloquently. Thank you. My dad listens to this podcast. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I want to keep that in. Yeah, you should. <laughs> Hi, Dad. <laughs> Love you. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Anyway, yes, uh, the the knights and maidens no longer have to sit on the filthy steps. Yes. But there's something more important to discuss. Oh. The queen of this castle, who is an ally of the Fisher King, is at war with Percival's other uncle, the king of Castle Mortal. Oh, yes, he's the bad guy. <laughs> yes. We know him. Of course, he's and, the bad guy with a, with a name like that. Yeah, that is... The only characterization we've gotten of him is that his name is the King of Castle Mortal, and he is the bad guy. I'm here for it. Oh, and also that he's jealous of the Fisher King's stuff, but I feel like that's just that's part him being of his... the bad guy. Yeah. For some reason, being at war with the King of Castle Mortal works like this. Oh dear. Once a week, the king shows up on an island a little ways off the coast. From there, he, and presumably some sort of fighting force, but it's not really made clear, assaults the Castle of the Galleys. And then I guess he leaves, and then comes back next week. So he just appears on an island. I think he has a boat, but... Okay, makes sense. But yeah, like, there's there's not a prolonged siege. He just shows up once a week, attacks, and then leaves. I feel like there's something to be said here about the military-industrial complex of medieval Britain at this time, and how it's probably actually sustaining an economy, but hurting people in the long run. I feel like you just said it, and that's a good thing to say. <laughs> There we go. <laughs> Done. Checked it off. That's why he's there once a week. That's it. <laughs> yes, he's helping the economy. <laughs> There's a lot to be said there that I think we can just, we just have to leave an implication. I think so. To keep from having me get too leftist on me here. <laughs> this is a safe space. You have room for that. True. But I also do want to read this story instead of yes, going into yes, fair contemporary enough. politics too much. Oh. Anyway, Percival agrees to help, because of course he does. He gets to fight someone. We get a quick aside here, telling us that the Queen of the Maidens is, much like the Queen of the Pavilions, super horny for Percival. But, okay. unlike the Queen of the Pavilions, she is aware that Percival has no interest in sex. Good for her! So she doesn't try hitting on him. Nice, we appreciate that. I pitched this uh, last time we talked about him. This is this is where I have scrawled in the margin, Ace Icon Sir Percival. Yes! Although he has problematic representation. Uh, the text seems to present the idea that it's just because he's so pure and good that, like, such base things have no hold on him or whatever, but I think it's pretty clear that he's just Ace. I mean, to be fair, I know some Ace people who would argue that 
that is in fact a characteristic of being ace. So being pure and good. Absolutely. I mean, I'm not going to say that they're bad people. (laughs) I don't know. I'm wary about giving moral weight to a sexual orientation. (laughs) That's incredibly reasonable. Carry on. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Of course, neither of these interpretations are compatible with the original Chrétien, in which he is definitely into the ladies, so Mm -hmm. who knows generally. Yes, of course. Anyway, when the king of Castle Mortal next arrives on his little island, Percival goes out to meet him in single combat. There's a bit of an action scene. But then, the king of Castle Mortal recognizes Percival's shield and stops the fight for the following conversation. Okay. Now, can you do an evil voice? Oh, you're going to have to put the booming reverb on it or something. Okay. I'll I'll remember to do that because you said it. Yeah. Okay. Where did you get that shield? It was my father's. Was your father Big Alan? Yes. Big Alan, who married my sister, Yaglace? Yes. And you are their son? Yes. And my sister's name is Dindrain. Then you are my nephew. Yes, I knew that already. I didn't bring it up because I kind of hate you. Oof. I mean, understandable. Going no contact is always an option. Yeah. Of course, it's interesting that that he's not only no contact from now, but also no contact until now. This is the only time they've met. (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) And it's in combat. Yeah. That seems like a pretty, like, perfect moment in a TV series. Yeah, like, imagine if Darth Vader did the whole, Luke, I am your father, and Luke was like, I know. (laughs) I just didn't tell you because I didn't want to be associated with you. (laughs) Understandable. Oh, rough. Well, he does take it kind of hard. At this, the King of Castle Mortal decides to cut his losses. He doesn't think he can win the fight, and this family reunion is going really poorly, so there's just no reason to stick around. He gets back in his boat and f***s off, with Percival shouting after him to stay and fight the coward, etc., etc. And that's how we end Branch 11. Oh, gosh. I mean, to be fair, I now understand where Percival gets his impulses from. Like, it comes from Iglesias' side of the family. Apparently, yeah. Then again, all of his uncles on his father's side died in combat, so apparently he comes by it honestly on both ends. That's why it's just culminated in this small ball of unbridled rage that is Percival. (laughs) There's no room for sex. It's only fighting. Uh, We're back at Arthur's court now, Branch 12. All right. Gowan and Lancelot have both returned, an event which Arthur and the narrator decide to use to deliver some jarring exposition and or foreshadowing. Oh, no. And the king asked them if they had seen his son Loholt in any of the forests or isles, but they said they had not. I wonder much, said the king, what has become of him? For I have heard no word of him since Kay the Seneschal killed Logren the giant and brought his head back to me. It gave me great joy, and I gladly enlarged Kay's fief, which was only right, for he had gained revenge for me on one who had done more harm to my land than anybody, and for that I love him dearly. But if the king had known how Kay had behaved towards him, he would not have heaped such praise on his chivalry and courage. Ooh. No explanation. None? It, that's it. So this must be like a tale that's connected because this is what happens a lot in, in Arthuriana and stories like this is you hear a little bit about some story and you have to go and find that story and get somebody to read it to you or tell it to you or so yeah. on and so forth in order for you to get the whole picture. Or it's just very weird foreshadowing and we're going to hear about it later. I hope so. I want to know. 
But yeah, it just leaves it there. Like, oh, if he had only known. <laughs> Poor writing 101. Come on. Anyway, we blow right past that and skip ahead to the court at dinner one day. When Percival's sister, Dandrane, shows up. Handy. She explains that her mother is desperately in need of help, and she had been seeking her long-lost brother, Percival, to provide that help, but has kind of given up on finding him. That's right. He, like, he met Groucha and didn't say a word and just booked it, and he never went home. Yeah. Yeah, he still hasn't gone home. What a dick. All right. Instead, she wants to request the aid of this good knight about which she has heard so much. <laughs> rough. That's yeah. rough. You know, sire, the one who is supposed to show up and take that shield you have hanging from a pillar there. And this provides us with an illustration of two important writing concepts. Or at least that's what I have written down here. I don't remember this. So dramatic irony and what else? One is dramatic irony. We, the audience, know that Percival and the Good Knight are one and the same, but none of the characters present are aware. Oh. Two. Oh, I see. Yeah. This is me nitpicking. Two is fridge logic. <laughs> ah, oh yes, fridge logic. Why doesn't she just ask for the help of the many knights already present, instead of one who is expected to arrive at an uncertain point in the future? Because it's the plot. Yes, because it's the plot. Of course it's the plot. But like, Lancelot and Gowan are right there. Yes, but they also have a kill count. And apparently this good knight is just so good and noble. Of course he is. <laughs> anyway, when Dandrain is led to the quarters in which she will be staying while they wait for the good knight, she encounters that dog that Harpa brought to court. Oh yeah, the dog that'll only bark if it yeah. sees Percival. Yeah, the dog has apparently been very standoffish, as expected. I actually have a reminder written, like you may recall, it was said that it will greet no one until the arrival of the good knight. Yes. However, apparently either that rule is flexible, or we have been misled about Dandrain's knightly status, because <laughs> the text informs us that the dog greets her enthusiastically, climbs in her lap, and continues to follow her around for as long as she stays at Arthur's court, which is some time. Maybe it's just, it's like the family dog. Yeah. Percival and Dandrain have the same smell. I think it's cute that the text has the dog climb in her lap. I think it's adorable. She deserves to have at least one good thing. Yeah. Eventually, a strange event comes to pass, which I have a quote for. One night, as the king lay sleeping with the queen beside him, he awoke after a short slumber and could not go back to sleep. So he rose and donned a long gray gown, and leaving his chamber, he climbed up to lean at the windows of the hall, which looked out over the sea. He could see the bright and shining stars in the sky, and the air was clear and pure, and the night was still and tranquil. He looked down at the calm and stormless sea, and he felt happy, leaning at the window, watching. He stayed there for a long while, gazing down at the seashore, and then suddenly he saw far away a light approaching over the sea like the beam of a candle. He wondered much what it could be. He stood there watching until he made out what seemed to be a ship where the light was, and he decided not to move until he knew whether it was a boat or something else. But the more he looked, the more it seemed that it was indeed a ship, and it was sailing swiftly and as straight as it could towards the castle. The king now saw it close too, but he could see no one on board save an old and white-haired man of great beauty who was holding the ship's tiller. The craft was draped in the middle with the finest silken cloth, and the sail was lowered because the sea was so calm and still. The ship sailed up beneath the castle in silence, and when it touched land, the king gazed down in wonder, not knowing what could be on board, for he could not hear a soul talking. He decided to go and see what was in the ship. He left the hall and came down to where it was anchored, but he could not reach it because of the tide. Sire! 
cried the man at the tiller. Wait a moment, I pray you. And he launched a little boat from the ship, and the king climbed in and sailed out to join him. There he found a knight lying fully armed upon a table of ivory, with a shield laid at his head. By his pillow two great candles were burning in two golden candlesticks, and at his feet likewise, and his hands were folded on his chest. The king came up and gazed at him, and he thought that never before had he seen so handsome a knight. Sire, said the ship's master, draw back, I pray you, and let the knight rest, for he has great need of sleep. Who is the knight, sire? asked the king. He will tell you if he wishes, sire, but his name you will not have from me. Will he soon be leaving here? Not before he has been to yonder hall, but he has suffered much hardship and is now resting. The king was overjoyed to hear that he would be coming to the hall, and he returned to the queen's chamber and told her of the ship's arrival. The queen rose with two of her maids, and donning a long silken gown lined with ermine, she came into the hall. Just then, the knight appeared in all his armor, and the ship's master before him, bearing the torch of candles and the golden candlestick, and the knight was holding a drawn sword. Welcome, sire, said the queen. May God grant you joy and good fortune, my lady, he replied. No! I know that voice. <laughs> no! If it please God, sire, she said, we will have nothing to fear from you. You need have no fear, my lady, he said. Then the king saw the red shield with the white stag of which he had heard tell. And the dog, who was lying in the hall, heard the knight's voice, and came running towards him, and bounded between his legs, and gave him the most joyful welcome. The knight rejoiced to see the dog too. Then, taking hold of the shield which hung on the pillar, he set his own in its place, and straightway he turned back towards the door of the hall, and the king said to the queen, My lady, beg the knight not to leave so soon. Sire, said the knight, I am not free to stay, but you will see me again before long. That feels like a threat. It does. Coming from Percival, that's a threat. Well, they're, they're not even going to mention this to, to Den Dendre? No. <gasps> the king and the queen were deeply sorry to see him go, but they did not wish to press him against his will. He boarded the ship once more, and the dog with him. And when the master had hauled the little boat aboard, they sailed from the harbor and left the castle far behind. King Arthur was left there at unpronounceable French word, filled with <laughs> sorrow that the knight had gone so soon. It's not Camelot? Oh no, because Camelot is like Hugh Glace's place. No, it's the like weird old French mutilation of Penzance. Oh, that one. Yes, that's right. Anyway, as you may have noticed, I have written here, Arthur straight up forgot to tell the good knight anything about Dandrain, who has been staying in his court for a while now, so she can meet this knight and ask for his aid. The next morning, Dan Drain berates Arthur for this and decides to set off to seek the good knight on her own. He can't have gone far, right? Oh no. After she leaves, Lancelot and Gawain come in. Lancelot recognizes the shield left behind by the good knight and they put the pieces together. Everyone's missing all these big events. Like they can't get together at the same time. And this is that interlacement that we were talking about. I love it. It's all ships passing in the night. Oh, I love it. Lancelot also mentions that he spent some time recovering in Pellis's hermitage after he and Percival fought, provoking the following buck-wild statement from Gawain. Oh no. Lancelot, I wish that he had wounded me a little, so that I could have stayed with him as long as you. Oh my. I know. So, remember that whole thing I just said about, you know, homosocial relationships don't necessarily mean it's homoerotic relationships? Yeah, maybe that's not quite as applicable here. 
Yeah, the way they talk about Percival really does get homoerotic. It's really just something. Yeah. Ooh, okay. All right. Eventually, it is decided that Lancelot and Gowan will go out to search for the good knight in order to fulfill Arthur's promise to Dandrain. (sighs) Useless king. I know. They ride until they come to, quote, across in the middle of a glade where all the forest paths met, which strikes me as additional evidence that these people live in a video game. Yes, absolutely. They pull a let's split up, gang, and agree (gasps) to meet back in this extremely convenient quest hub in one year to compare notes. But don't they know that you never split the party? They do not. They they spend all of their time roaming around by themselves. Alas, they're going to get in trouble. Well, that's where Branch 12 ends, and I think we've still got time, so let's try and do a fourth at least. All right, so Branch 13. Branch 13. So Gowan picked the right quest option, it seems, because that <laughs> very night... Oh my gosh. He stays in a hermitage, and the hermit is able to provide him with pertinent information. Which is our first dialogue. You found the quest giver. Yes. Maybe you can help me. I'm looking for this knight. Oh no, no knights around here. What do you mean, no knights around here? There used to be a bunch, but you see, they've all been driven away by this one really aggressive knight. Uh, He fought his uncle on an island near the castle of the galleys, and ever since then he's based himself on that island, and, uh, well... Having seafaring adventures and fighting every night he can find, much to the uh, disappointment of the Queen of the Maidens, who loves him and wants him to come and stay in the castle with her. Uh, And this has been going on for about a year, so no, no, no knights in the area. That was some extremely helpful exposition. What shield does this knight carry? Do I look like I know heraldry to you? The next day, Gowan heads down to the sea, then rides along the shore hoping to see this seafaring knight. Eventually, he comes to the castle of the galleys, only to discover that the Queen of the Maidens doesn't know where Percival is either. Though it seems like she at least confirms that the knight in question is Percival. Yes, that would be the aim. Oh, of course she doesn't know where he is. He won't come to her. Yes. Well, she's, he's on an island, like, within sight of her castle, so theoretically she could keep track of him, but apparently not. Apparently he's out. She's a busy woman. She's got better things to do. Yeah, fair. She is a queen. After staying the night in the castle, Gowan heads back out and encounters the night coward again. Oh, we love this guy. (laughs) Yes, he's back. He stops long enough to explain that he's fleeing from another knight whom he finds very scary. (laughs) And that's the extent of that. It's definitely Percival. It's probably Percival. And I just really love him as a character. This poor guy is it's the wrong he picked the wrong job. He showed up in King Arthur's castle and he's like, Hey, um so I I sort of read stories about knights and King Arthur's like, Bet, come over here and he knights him and he's like, I just wanted to do a meet and greet, but now he's a knight and now he's stuck doing this. This poor guy. To be clear, that is entirely headcanon, but also it makes sense given what we know about how quickly Arthur knights people. Yeah, Arthur's got problems. Gowan continues on until he meets a knight who carries a gold shield with a green cross. He asks this knight about Percival, and is informed that he can find Percival at the tournament that is scheduled to take place in 40 days on the Crimson Heath. Good name for a place. That is a very good name. Gowan is pleased and wanders off, but the knight with the gold shield scurries down to the shore and gets in the boat he has hidden behind a rock cluing the reader in that this is, in fact, Percival in disguise. Why would Percival do this? He just wants to fight people. 
He just likes being in disguise. He's such a teenager. You kind of is, yeah. I can I can appreciate that. Like he's he's a total ass, but Yes, he definitely is. But yeah, he's he's clearly just having fun with it, just in a disturbing way. Yeah. Gowan continues on, eventually coming across a maiden who is traveling with a horse-drawn litter holding a dead knight. This maiden comes back a lot, so she needs a name, and I'd like you to try and give her one. I'll call we'll call her Necra. Necra it is. That's she's, easy to she's got a she's got a dead guy with her, so. Gowan asks her what she's doing, and she explains that she is taking the corpse to the Crimson Heath, and that the winner of the aforementioned tournament will be tasked with avenging his death. I am so glad that that is the prize and not his body. (laughs) I was really worried that the prize was going to be his body because apparently there's a thing in this story about heads covered in lead and gold and stuff. So I, you know, bodies aren't that far off. It would not be out of the question, no. Cool. But no, it's, it's that they have to avenge his death. Doable. Much more doable. After they part ways, Gowan arrives at a castle, which is apparently inhabited by only an aged knight and his servant boy. He stays the night, and in the morning, the old knight asks him not to leave right away because he needs a champion. For the tournament? No! Oh, okay. That was a good guess, but no. <laughs> He needs a champion for the right here to help him against another knight who wishes to kill him because he once gave lodging to the king of Castle Mortal. As they talk, the knight from before with the gold shield, aka Percival in disguise, yes, Percival, rides into the field outside the castle and the old man points him out as the knight in question. Uh, yeah, you know, I should have guessed. So Gowan arms himself and gets on his horse and goes charging out, but the other knight just kind of waits there. Confused, Gowan slows down and decides to just ride up and talk to him. They have the following exchange of verbatim. Do you mean any harm? No, indeed, for I would tell you so if I did. At this point, a maiden on a mule hurries up to them. Upon reaching the pair, she strikes a dramatic pose and says to nobody in particular, Oh, God! Will I ever find one to avenge me upon the treacherous vassal who dwells in yonder castle? Is he a traitor, then? Was that dramatic enough? <laughs> yes, I need the listeners to know that Zoe definitely struck the dramatic pose. Oh, I absolutely did. <laughs> Again, all of that, direct quotes. She just rides up and, like, declaims. Wow. And he's just like, oh, he's a traitor? What? Sure, why not? Now that he's on the hook, the maiden explains the issue. See, much like Gowan, her brother had stayed the night in Yonder Castle, and in the morning been convinced to pick a fight with another passing knight. He and his opponent had ended up killing each other, at which point the old man came out to loot the bodies. Apparently this is a scam he's running. I mean... (laughs) That sounds like a really good side quest, though. It does, it does! We gotta use this one. We do. We'll we'll make a note when we get to our, our or rather, you should make a note and so yes. we remember it when we get to our segments. I will. Because I know that you've got a notebook right there. Yeah. Also, this maiden is following Necra around. It's not clear why, she just is. Okay. This is not immediately relevant, it's just information we're given. Understood. Gowan asks the knight with the gold shield his name, but is told, quote, Do not ask me my name until such time as I ask you yours. Apparently that's enough, because Gowan rides on. I mean, at that point, I would just be like, okay, kid's crazy, I'm just gonna leave that one there. Yes, fair. 
So Gawain is, quote, asking every knight and maiden he met for news of the knight he was seeking, and all told him that he would be at the Crimson Heath. You'd think he'd stop asking eventually, because, like, he knows where he'll be next month. Just go there. Just just go on, yeah. Stop asking people things. See, but is he in a race against Lancelot? Is that what this is? Maybe. Are they having it out? Is this a measuring contest? Who's the better knight? <laughs> I feel like we can assume that almost everything that the knights do is a measuring contest. That's fair. I feel like that's very on brand for the two of them. Yes, fact. I don't think they made it clear, but I feel like, yeah, it's plausible. It's in character. That night, he stays with a hermit named Jasimus, or however you say that, and asks him the same question. The hermit breaks the news that the knight with the golden shield is Percival, <laughs> having borrowed one of Joseus's extra shields as a disguise. So someone finally tells him. The hermit knows these things because he's a relative. He's King Pelus' brother-in-law. Oh, nice! Percival stayed with him recently and left behind the dog who greeted him at Arthur's court for the hermit to pass along to Pelus. Pelus' hermitage is probably a better place for a dog to be than with Percival, so I personally approve of this decision. Agreed. Gowan and the hermit then have a couple interesting exchanges that I've copied verbatim. There's some material I cut in between, but it's just retreading what we've already said. Fair. Oh, alas, says Sir Gawain, I am unfortunate indeed if that is true. Sire, said the hermit, I should never lie to you or anyone else, and you can see from the dog that it is so. Which, I don't know why that helps. He's like, look, dog. Okay. I mean, Gawain's seen the dog. He'd be able to recognize it. That's true. It. He might recognize the dog. Yeah. I just like the phrase, you can see from the dog that it is so. I think that's the whole reason I included that. Turn a phrase. Yes. Truly, it has ill befallen me, said Sir Gawain, for I saw him yesterday before the castle where knights often pass, and I spoke to him and would gladly have asked his name, but he told me not to ask, until such time as he asked me mine. Then he left me and rode off into the forest, and I came this way. Now my grief is such that I know not what to do. King Arthur sent me forth to find him, and Lancelot is out in another part of the kingdom of Logres in search of him. Oh, it has ill befallen me in this quest. Twice I have found him and spoken with him and then lost him again but I should have known that it was he when he was so elusive. Sire, said the hermit, he is indeed a rather mysterious knight, and he never wishes to waste words or make false pretenses to anyone. All he's done is, is make... Is. Yeah, all he's done is make false pretenses. Yeah. Or make any promises which he would not be able to keep or knowingly do any harm, or commit any carnal sin with his body. Rather, he is pure and chaste and innocent of any excess. The only true thing about this is that he will not commit any carnal sin with his body. Yes. Otherwise, this is all false. I would argue that he is also a mysterious knight, and that part is also true. Okay, alright, I'll give him that one. Anyway, Gowan disagrees with you because he says, I know in truth that he is endowed with all the qualities and pure innocence that a knight should have. And because of that, I grieve all the more that I am not his companion, for one gains much from the company of a good knight. I feel like since knights are supposed to be, you know warriors that pure innocence is not really the ideal characteristic of a knight but go off i agree i mean the tenets of chivalry and the actualities of what you must do as a knight are two totally different categories i agree i mean that's why tournaments became a thing is so you could prove what a manly man you are and also still be a gentlemanly courteous you know <laughs> whatever so yeah. But yeah, it's, it's, it's a weird juxtaposition. It doesn't really work. I don't like it. No. <laughs> Especially when we're looking at Percival acting the way he does. I concur. None of it makes any sense. It does not. It does not. All right. 
The next section is also interesting because of its emphasis on the fictitious source. I quote, Sir Gawain stayed that night at the hermitage in the lowest spirits and departed the next morning after hearing mass. In this noble story, the good scribe Josephus tells us that the hermit's name was Josimus, who was a knight of great worth and valor, but gave up everything out of love for God, wishing to give himself wholly to him. And all the adventures of which you hear in this high story took place, Josephus tells us, to advance the law of the Savior. I cannot recall them all, but I shall recount those which I remember best. Adventures which Josephus knew, it is certain, by the grace of the Holy Spirit. Which might explain why he, about the time-space thing. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, that's fair. Also, those names are very similar. Josimus and Josephus and Joseus, the other hermit? Yes, they're they're all very similar. (laughs) Hmm. Have you ever seen them in the same room? Hmm. I wonder. Of course, it doesn't really solve the time thing unless we also assume that Pelus has an immortal mule and, like, Joseph of Arimathea was 400 years old or something. Like, really, everything does point to this still being first century. Yeah, that's true, which is also doesn't make any sense, but okay. Anyway, Gowan arrives at the Crimson Heath for the LARP. Woohoo! LARP number two! Let's go! He gets there in time to wander among the tents as the others get ready, only to discover that Percival must have swapped shields again as the golden shield is not visible anywhere. Ugh. This would be a really fun episode in a show because you get you get the the little montage where Gawain's like pushing through the crowd and he's trying to figure it out. There's shields everywhere, or like you're doing this as a video game, or or just as a D and D thing. You have to roll mm. investigation checks over and over and over again. It's like no, can't find it. I feel like there should be like as a house rule in any kind of like Arthurian game where like. If you roll a certain specific number on an investigation check, you discover that the knight you're talking to is actually Percival, <laughs> whether or not he was before. He pops up. It's like the wild magic table. Yeah. Yeah. Like you, every time you meet a new knight, the GM rolls a, rolls, a yeah. D100 behind yeah. the screen. If it's 100, Absolutely. it's Percival. Oh. In disguise. In disguise. Also, Necra is sitting on the sidelines watching. Which makes me kind of wonder, like, what else is on the sidelines? Is it like a like a kid's soccer game like are there is just there's lines of like bleachers and parents with snacks there's popcorn yeah i I mean i would wager so it's i mean it's a tournament that's true everyone's gonna want to go see a tournament now that you say that like i can picture like what you see at like at a ren fair tournament i'm like yeah that's probably accurate yeah didn't you ever see a knight's tale i didn't no oh it's funny you should watch it chaucer is like a smart-mouthed redhead and they stamp and sing, we will rock you at the opening of the jousting tournament. That's pretty good. It's really great. It's really fun. Hey, one of these days I've got to see it because you're not the first person to recommend it to me. You, I think you'd like it. I just don't see movies very often. That's fair. Neither do I. Anyhow, the LARP begins and Gowan eventually decides to, quote, forget my worries as best I can in combat. That's a coping mechanism. It's a a coping mechanism. We're not going to say it's a good one. Yeah. He sees another knight with a white shield who is fighting exceptionally well. Other knights are, quote, fleeing from him as a dog runs from a lion. Interesting simile. How many how many lions have medieval people seen? Like this author in particular. I'm going to go with in France, probably not many. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I thought. Just asking. The text clues us in. This is, in fact, Percival. But as established... On uh, on Twitter, knights have the brains of angry territorial roosters. Yes. 
So Gawain just immediately starts fighting him. Understood. This is also dictated by the text. We know that there's a curse. Yes. I'm going to quote at length. Then he saw the knight, but did not recognize him because the shield he bore was white and all his other arms likewise. Gawain charged at him as fast as his horse could go, and the knight charged at Gawain, and they struck each other on the shields with such force that they pierced the bosses and a full yard of their lances smashed through. Their lances were strong and did not break. Oof. Obligatory comment about their strong lances penetrating shields. Yeah, a, a yard. A yes. yard. <laughs> Woo! And they withdrew them and came back at each other with such fury that as they struck one another full in the chest, their lances bent like bows. And they were thrown from their seats and lost their stirrups as the reins flew from their hands. They were laid flat in their saddles. That's actually really amazing. That's a really good description of a joust, to be fair. Because the idea that you lose your stirrups, that makes sense. And then you completely are going to be unhorsed. The idea that you're thrown backward in your saddle, that makes a lot of sense. And then what was the beginning bit after the bosses? Their lances bent like bows as they struck each other in the chest. That indicates to me that they are they have very well-made lances because and it's the same with swords actually in as you got into the Renaissance, but even before, particularly for rapiers, but also more for rapiers, occasionally sabers, so on and so forth, blah blah blah. You would want to test a blade by bending it against something. So you would go into a, a sword shop or the smiths or whatever, and you would lunge against the wall and press the, the blade against the wall to see whether it would bend. And if it broke, you were not responsible for paying for it because it was of bad make. Oh. Yeah. And so, like, people make comments about that all the time, especially for, like, fencing weapons, because I'm an FAist, and they're like, oh, well, those, those bend a whole lot. I'm like, yes, yes, they do. Because the last thing you want is to be in a sword fight and have your blade hit somebody's rib and snap off. No, you want it to bend so you can keep using the blade. Ideally, you'd go through the rib cage, like, between the ribs, but in case you hit something, you can use your blade again. Yes, and this is, of course, what Beowulf didn't know, as we all <laughs> remember. He kept breaking his swords. Yes, obviously. Poor poor Beowulf. Well, also, those were not the same make. They didn't refine no. as well. No, I really don't think Anglo-Saxon swords were the kind of uh, whippy, bendy things. No. that I'm not sure if they bent at all because of the way they were made. I don't know. Someone else can tell us about whether Anglo-Saxon swords could, could bend. I guarantee you they had to have some give because they couldn't be brittle. The last thing you want is a brittle yeah. sword, but I don't know how much actual bend they had. Yeah, I'd like to know, actually. Yeah. Someone, someone, If you know, tell us. I'm sure we have at least some uh, sword fans yeah, out Yeah, do we have any sword experts? Sword expert listeners? I would be shocked if we didn't have at least one person who knows a lot about swords. Yeah, oh, I would love to know. Anyway, so this is a dramatic description. Like much of his combat description, as you commented last time, it's clearly drawn from life. Like, this is a guy who's, like, hung around knights. Yeah, he's seen some shit. Uh, they laid flat in their saddles, and their horses staggered and almost fell. They set themselves back in their saddles and found their stirrups again. Then seizing the reins and riding their shields, they came back at each other. Sparing nothing, burning with rage and fury, like lions. Sure. That's probably not drawn from life. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's a powerful metaphor, so we'll give it to him. <laughs> okay. And again they struck one another, with such force that their lances would hold no longer, 
and smashed right down to their fists, so that all those watching marveled that the blades did not go through their bodies. But God did not want these good knights to kill one another. His wish was that each should know the other's worth. It was not merely their hauberks that protected their bodies, but the grace of God in whom they believed, for they were endowed with all the qualities that knights should have. Sir Gawain never left a house where he had found lodging without first hearing mass if it was being sung, and he never came across a lady or maiden in need, but he took pity on her. And the other knight was never guilty of any wicked deeds or words or thoughts. <laughs> Are you sure about that? <laughs> he seems pretty sure, but I have questions. Okay. All right. Keep going. But yeah, like I like that apparently the narrator agrees that Percival has never do done anything wrong in ever life. in his life. Yeah, ever. Oh, come on, you guys. And as you have heard, he was of the holy line of Joseph of Arimathea and the Fisher King. So of course he gets a pass. Yeah. Because of his noble birth, he gets a pass. Boo. That's a little too realistic. Ugh. These good knights were in the middle of the tournament, each incensed against the other, clutching naked swords, their shields strapped to their arms, and dealing each other terrible blows on their helms. So they, so they are unhorsed, they immediately mm -hmm. draw their swords and start whacking each other in the head. Yes. Which I also want to point out, because this is utterly fascinating to me, and I think we talked about this before, maybe on the podcast, I don't recall. Anyway, when you're in like an actual rapier fight, you, you are doing some fencing and you have to use some technique, blah, blah, blah. When you are in an, a battle and you're using a double-bladed hand and a half bastard sword, you know, whatever, whatever you've got, it's not a rapier, it's not a specialized weapon. Here's the thing. Armor was pretty good. It was nice armor. So what you ended up doing was smashing your opponent either with the edge of the blade or with the flat of the blade until they fell down. And then you stab them in between the places in the armor because it was very difficult to actually penetrate the armor. Some nice blades could for sure, but ultimately you're trying to get in between the armor to the soft squishy bits. And so most actual battles and skirmishes when they, when they weren't just, you know, English longbowmen drawing and pulling and raining arrows. And once it was an actual skirmish, it's more that like you smash people in the head. Like if you've ever actually seen a HEMA tournament, which is what is it? Historical European martial arts, anything like that. They have tournaments and most of it is just people smashing the shit out of each other. And that's exactly what it would have been, basically. So, fun note, this description is in fact accurate to how it would be, which is also why, for the most part, when these people are getting hurt, they're not getting mortally wounded. They're just getting cuts and slashes and bruises and broken bones. And also, later on, armor became so good that something would be bulletproofed, which is when you would shoot at the armor and it would create a dent to prove that it was strong enough to keep a bullet from going through. And so that would be the proof for the armor. So it was bulletproof. So there you go. Some armor and sword history for you. That is fascinating. Isn't that All cool? Especially the etymology. I like etymology. Etymology is fun. But yeah, like to be bulletproofed was something that like good, decent armor had to do. And so if you look it up, you can see pieces of armor that have dents in it. And it's like, oh man, this armor's all damaged. No, it's not. Like that's how it was sold deliberately. But anyway, so they're smashing each other's heads in. This is true to history. <laughs> So romantic, so, so glorious, so beautiful, the beauty of the past. Anyway. <laughs> That's what you want when you go to a Ren Faire, right? That's what you expect. 
But now some of the knights came up to them and said that the tourney had been held up because of their combat, and with great difficulty they forced them apart. Oh my gosh. Then great melees broke out once more all over the field until darkness parted them. Wow. So yeah, they have to be pulled apart by the other knights. We're like, guys, guys. it's too much. It's too much. Back <laughs> off. It's a LARP, you guys. Come on. Yeah. Chill, chill. Stop trying to kill each other. Like, we get you guys have a past, but like, come on. Yeah, except they don't. They sort of At do. Least. Yeah, but Gowan doesn't know it's Percival. That's true. Damn it. I'm not sure if Percival knows it's Gowan. Oh yeah, that's very true. <laughs> they just get super heated. The LARP goes on for two more days until Necra basically begs all these nut bars to pick a winner already so she'll have someone to avenge said corpse. Yeah, there's a real mission here, you guys. There's a real quest. Can we skip the minigame? Everyone agrees that the, quote, Knight of the White Shield, a.k.a. Percival, and Gowen are tied for the best. But Percival gets the title because he had started first, and Gowen can be runner-up. That seems entirely unfair, and you should let them fight it out. <laughs> but then they'll have to watch them beat each other in the head again. Absolutely, maybe one of them will die. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's what I would advocate for, but that's not what they do. Oh dear, okay. So, Percival wins. Yeah, Necro goes to talk to Percival. But, surprise, surprise, he's pulled a Batman and left when nobody was looking. This guy! No problem, though, right? There's a runner-up. Shirley Chivalric Larps work like beauty pageants, where the runner-up takes over the winner's duties if necessary, right? Oh, no. Wrong! And now we have a dialogue. Here we go. I can't find the winner. Runner-up, it falls to you to avenge this dead knight. Direct quote. Damsel, it would be shameful to make me do so, for it was decided that the other knight had performed best. You surely know that I would gain no honor by undertaking to do your bidding, for you said yourself that none is to avenge him, save he who triumphed at the tourney, and that was the other knight. He's already gone, and he keeps changing his shield, so I can't find him, even though, of course, as the finest knight in the world, he's my top choice for blood vengeance. Wait, did you say finest knight in the world? Yes, I saw him when he came to the court of the Fisher King. God damn it, I've been looking for him too. He's just so damn sneaky. But now perhaps I can recognize him from his combat style. Direct quote. I would gladly suffer more of his blows just to be with him. Bruh. <laughs> Chill out, Gawain. Control the thirst, my man. Oh. Alright, okay. Anyway, direct quote. Now I must suffer much toil and hardship in seeking him, for I shall not find him for a long while. I only came to the tourney because of him. Yeah, that's rough. Anyway, I gotta go. Oh my gosh. Despite what the narration said only a little while ago about Gowan helping ladies in need, the two-part ways. Oh my gosh! Yeah, you're right, actually. He's never, he never has ever denied a lady in need. Yeah, and then immediately he does. Wow. Low blow, Gawain. And that's the end of Branch 13. Amazing. You have not reached enough maiden points for this quest. <laughs> she's not She's not leveled up enough. I like that he's like, I would gain no honor by doing this, so no. So no. You're a dick, sir. Oh, oh my gosh. All right. Welcome. The Leech's Corner. Alright, so this is from Leech Book 2, Chapter 27. Of the various nature of the Womb, belly. But Cockaine insists on calling it the Womb. Womb. Yeah, like womb, but with an A. Womb. Oh, wow. Alright, cool. 
I didn't expect it to be that, I don't know, that odd. Anyway. Or it's caprice, how a man may understand that. When it is of a hot temper and nature, then a little drink may soon help it. If the drink be more powerful, soon the womb is oppressed and palpitates, as if in cold it were beating, and it rejoiceth in dry meats. When the womb is moist, it doth not suffer thirst, and it is of a very moist nature. It doth not suffer thirst or heaviness from meats, and it rejoices in moist meats. Of the hot nature of the womb. <laughs> I don't like that at all. <laughs> the womb, that which is of a hot nature, digests meat well, especially those which be hard and of difficult digestion, and rejoices in warm meats and drinks, and it is not harmed by cold meats, taken with moderation. That which is of a watery nature hath a good appetite for meat. It hath not a good digestion. Chiefly of the meats which be of difficult digestion, it rejoices in cold meats. Of the cold and moist-natured womb. The womb which is of a cold or moist nature or caprice. How do you determine which womb you have? <laughs> I assume it has to be experimentally verified. Oh, this is like finding out what foods you're intolerant of. Yeah, or, yeah, basically. Oh, wow. Anyway, okay, finish it and then I'll go on my little tangents. Alright. The womb which is of a cold or moist nature of caprice. On the man cometh disease of the brain. And loss of his senses. And when the desiccated nature is upon the sinews and on the bones, so they are dried up, they cannot be cured. Then if this dryness be more within on the fleshy parts, one may cure, one may cure that with change of residence, and wettings, and meats, as long as from the liver the blood gusheth through the whole body. The best leechdom for such things is that a man should frequently make use of pitch, and strike the womb with it when it is warmed. And baths of rainwater and newly milked milk, softened with honey, is good for the patient. Let him bathe himself frequently in the day, and at whiles smear himself with oil. It is also helpful to him that a fat child should sleep by him. What? <laughs> I know. I think fat that's why child? I kept this one. A fat child. And that he should always put it, the child, near his womb. <laughs> oh. I don't like it. I don't like it at all. Oven baked bread also helpeth him, and shellfishes in liquor, and the meat which will readily digest. Of the hot and dry womb, if the diseased womb be somewhat hot, besides for the dryness, then shall the patient not taste of honey, but old wine and lukewarm meats. Okay, sure. If the evil humor be too mickle, then are good for him cold water and sharp meats without heat. At whiles the humors be on the membranes of the womb, then shall a man wisely seek into that, and warily cleanse them with aloes, and draw out the turbid humors with such purging drinks. First clear the womb with them, and then work light emetic drinks of radishes, as leeches kin how to do it. For for those wondering, like, purge is like vomiting, and then emetic is, is also, like... Yeah, an, an emetic drink is a drink that makes you vomit. Yeah. Ugh. With radishes? Apparently. Leeches kin how to do it. Uh, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Leeches can how to do it. Hey, I feel like that also that needs to be like a little <laughs> sticker. Leeches can how to do yeah, it. Leech yeah. <sighs> it then notes of venery, which literally means hunting, but there's a note in cocaine that in this context it means sex. To all dry constitutions, venery is not beneficial, but most to dry and cold <gasps> ones. It harmeth not hot and wet ones. You don't say. 
It is worst for the cold, moist ones. What and him does And them which have disorder of the gastric juices. Oh my gosh. To such men, it is of benefit that they should seek to themselves exercise and to dose themselves without bath and with smearings smear themselves. Whatever that means. (laughs) With smearings. (laughs) Of the cold nature of the womb. He who is of a cold nature should avail himself of moderate discipline as he who is of a dry or moist nature. He who is of a hot nature, with him the womb gathereth inflammatory humors. These, if they be low down, one must get rid of by wart drinks, through purging of the womb. How low down is low down for the womb? I, I think he's talking about... Like intestinal? That's the word I'm looking for. Yeah, I, I think that these, these wart drinks that purge the womb are laxatives. That makes sense. I just, you know, because... In Song of Solomon, they refer to the navel, and it's not the navel. So I'm just wondering how far down the womb goes. Mm, that's a good point. Just asking. Uh, you know, we're throwing around words like moist and hot, <laughs> and I just feel like they've already talked about um, hunting. And I'm like, you know, <laughs> especially if you've got, like, if, if it's specifically for warts. Well, that's wart with an O. Oh, okay, 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 I misunderstood, because I feel like if you've got warts down there, that's something you should check out. Yes. No, the reason I'm assuming that this purging with wart drinks is a laxative is because the other half of the sentence is, if they mount up high, one must get rid of them by vomitings. Ah, that makes sense. And that's the end of the entry on the womb and its caprice. Wow. Wow. That is a lot. What is it? Okay. What does it mean by caprice? I think it's like capriciousness. Oh, yes. Okay. Okay. Because what was I thinking of? I was thinking of like, um, whatever that fancy word was for that weird piece of armor. Oh, I Cappadoce or something. It was, it was something yeah. odd. Yeah. That's, the shoes, that's a, right? Yeah. That's that what I was thinking down about. In the green night. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So the womb. Yeah. So those are all the different natures of of womb it can be too hot or dry or wet or moist and these are how you deal with those things which makes sense i i I feel like this is this would be very very useful especially if you know what kind of temperament you have this is Mm -hmm. also this concept was also used and is also used in uh at least in indian medicine i believe it's ayurvedic medicine about what kind of ayurvedic ayurvedic yeah uh about what spirit you have whether it's like a fiery spirit or an air spirit and so on and so forth so you eat different things to help balance your temperament out and so on and so forth so that's very akin to this and you'll remember in the physica hildegard also talks about okay this is really good for moist humors Mm -hmm. or this is really good for people who have a hot and dry temperament and so on and so forth so they had an established system whether it had much basis in reality like it also doesn't help that we don't know what you know a moist and hot stomach is yeah which if we had a frame of reference for that might make a lot of this clear like what are the symptoms of having a hot and moist stomach is that like bloating how does how does this relate with pms that's one of my questions that's a good question like does does it change over time does a woman go from having a cool and dry to hot and moist in different parts of her cycle or was it like you're born with a certain temperament can you change your temperament how does that work i want to know 
I mean, I'm not sure that the people who thought about humors and stuff really cared much about women's health because I feel like uh, a lot of them are men. That's true, but Hil- I mean, Hildegard would have, I think. That's true. Hildegard would have. I wonder if she has anything to say about Because I was going to say, like, it's, I, I feel like the women had their own, like, thing going on, which oh yeah, uh, well, often and- didn't get written down, but Hildegard probably said something. I'll see if Hildegard says anything, and then it was... Like, to be a midwife in that community was very highly respected. Mm -hmm. So they definitely had their own thing, even if it wasn't written down. And for the most part, most medicine wasn't written down at that point anyway. There's a reason we don't have that many leech books. And I'm not sure how much, like, the knowledge of the midwife or the village wise woman or whatever actually had anything to do with humors, or if that was just a book thing. Well, Hildegard talks about it, so I would imagine that the two overlap a lot i mean it's sort of it's how i like although hildegard is also part of the monastic tradition true very very true but also it was a culture so steeped in christianity that basically everything was a part of the monastic tradition not the monastic tradition but at least the church tradition because it's it's akin to how i like speaking about magic and science like alchemy sort of crosses those lines but at a certain point the difference between magic and the difference between early science is not that big like if you're a natural philosopher the experiments that you do are going to look like spells and they might be misinterpreted and so and so on and so forth and if you're an early natural philosopher some of the things you do might be spells and some of the things that you do might be what we call experiments now and like what's mm-hmm. the difference really what's the what's the difference and so i i would wager that it's very similar in medicine both in terms of whether or not it's magic, but also in terms of, okay, this is old wise woman stuff versus this is, you know, ancient Greek medicine that we've carried down from ages and ages and we got from, you know, the universities, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I'm sure there was overlap. There had to have been. Yeah. But, you know. Hmm. Also, the fat kid? <laughs> what I think the that's heck? definitely on the magic side. Just, you know, if you've got an ailment, just... Get your chubby little fat kid next to you and just snuggle up at night and just, you know, slumber party with a fat kid and you're going to feel right as rain the next day. God, that's so unsettling. That's really not great. Like, what do you do? Like, you go next door and you're like, hey, Marta, Marta, can I borrow your son real quick? Just for tonight. He's very fat. Yeah. <laughs> what do you do? <laughs> right. It's like, uh, here's a doctor's note. I need to borrow your kid. Then what? Like, maybe the doctor has to revive the fat kid, and he like <laughs> retainer. Oh man, I don't like any of that. That's really unsettling. What is it about a fat kid that does it? I think it's because clearly they have a healthy belly or a womb. Yeah. I mean, I suppose so, but why not, like, what if your partner's pretty fat? Mm. You can't snuggle up with your partner? It's gotta be, like, a youth? Apparently. I don't know. I don't, mm, I don't like that. Wow. Okay, well, I don't have anything else to add, except probably, please don't try this one. Yeah, no, none of, none of this seems good. But if you do happen to ascertain what sort of, like, humor stomach you have, like, you know, if you figure out that you have a hot and dry stomach, let us know. And we'll, you know, we'll figure out the little chart of like, here's the symptoms of what having a hot and dry stomach is yeah. versus, you know, a cold and damp stomach. You know, I wonder why the whole alternative medicine community hasn't gotten back into humors. I was about to say that they should, but that is incredibly incorrect. They should not. They shouldn't. 
But like marketing wise, yeah, that would probably be a, a good idea. Forget essential them. oils. Yeah. It's all about eating the right foods for what stomach type you have. Right. And then you sell the tests that tell you what stomach type <gasps> you have. That would really work, actually. It absolutely would. The only reason that this hasn't been done is because academia has created this ivory tower where people don't study the humors. Mm-hmm. It's not been passed down through snake oil salesmen. They're all in they're all in the academy. Yeah, it's all it's just kind of been siloed off. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's a that's a scary idea. Yeah. I'd be surprised if there isn't at least someone out there trying to pitch a humors-based alternative medicine scheme. I really want to Google that now, but I don't even know what I would Google. Right. Like I I don't even I don't even know. Like for for humors alternative medicine cuz I get I get the I get the history of it. Naturopathy embraces the four humors. Oh, does it now? From sciencebasedmedicine.org. I believe you. Turns out humorism is alive and well in most of all CAM practices. Naturopathy. What is a CAM? Is that an alternative medicine? I assume. Complementary and alternative medicine. Interesting. All right. I guess there we go. I, I, although I guess they're not being very explicit about it since I haven't heard anything. But then again, I don't exactly keep my finger on the pulse of alternative medicine. Yeah. Humoral, humoral medicine and cupping. What is this? Fascinating. They all use the same picture of humors, which is not reassuring. I don't find any of this reassuring. <laughs> the emergence of modern humanism. Nope, humoralism. Human- humoralism. <laughs> that's by Frontiers, the Washington University Review of Health. Yeah, that's probably a serious article on, like, the problems with it. Yeah, or at least like an academic view of it. Yeah, it's doing more like an overview. Uh, Reiki, therapeutic healing touch and magnetic field therapy, blah, blah, blah. Interesting. Well. All right. Yeah, let's try not to delve too deep into this yeah, right now. Yeah, fair, fair, fair. Anyway. Yeah, so there you go. Now now you know. Something about something. that. Yeah. It's like, it's like the new Myers-Briggs personality type thing or the Enneagram. Or that thing about blood types that people like to do. There's a thing about blood types? Like your personality based on your blood type? Yeah, apparently oh. there's a personality blood type. I don't know any more about it other than that it exists. Wow. Forget that shit. That's old shit. Uh-uh. Humors are back in. Figure out what humor you have. Find someone who's compatible with you in your humors. That is how you will have a lasting relationship. You have to find humoric equilibrium. (laughs) Are you saying that you need to find someone who is hot and wet? Absolutely, if you are cold and dry. (laughs) (laughs) But two people who are hot and wet, it's a no-go. It's a bad idea. Don't do it, people. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. This is another time when I wish we were live streaming because the like how much you got into that. I'm so into it, man. Maybe we should just have, like, a, a string of fake medieval ads. Ooh. There's an idea. Yeah, there is an idea. That would be hilarious. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Get your kit today. <laughs> Complimentary leech. Purchase. <laughs> oh, no. Vendor not responsible for health of leech. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little, a little jar. Just... Oh, no. (laughs) 
Oh gosh. Anyway, that's yeah, anyway, that's all we got. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> Making my parents proud every day. <laughs> every day. <laughs> Thank you for listening to The Miniculum. Please consider leaving a rating and review in Apple Podcast to help support the project. For more geeky additions or to see our sources and notes, check out our blog, Marginalia, at themaniculumpodcast.com. You can also join our Facebook group, The Maniculum Podcast, to join in on discussions about all things medieval. And feel free to reach out. We're on Twitter, at Maniculum, and on Instagram, at Maniculum Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. And special thanks to Sandra Boyle, who created the music for our show. You can check out her project, Sugar Glass, on Spotify. Why would they attack a hermit? Oh, wait, that's your line. (laughs) Oops. I might keep that in. (laughs) (laughs) Oh no!